Hi, this is Brad Sham, the voice of the Dallas Cowboys. Please join me in Fort Worth on April 1st for the Texas Lyceum's public conference on the big business of football in Texas. Visit BigTexasFootball.com for more information. Texas Talking Out. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Out. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Out. Tell me who can you trust? Hi, I'm Jason Goldman, and I'm the White House Chief Digital Officer. I'm actually recording this intro at the White House, but since this is audio, that's hard to verify. But now here's your Tribcast and your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. I didn't know they allowed iPhones at the White House now. This is Ross Ramsey here with the Tribcast. (laughs) Right, for the second week of March. With us, as you have already heard, is our editor and CEO, Evan Smith. He, he, we can't see him recording this at the White House. He can't see that you're not wearing pants. You know, we may be in the White House for all he knows. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's like the call came from inside the house. It's like one of those <laughs> horror movies. Uh, Nina Satija, a reporter with the Tribune. Hey, Ross. Another reporter with the Tribune, Patrick Svitek. Hello. Aloha, uh, Patrick. Yeah. He's, Patrick is I didn't have the opportunity to go there. The Hawaii caucus. Or is it a primary or a caucus? It's a caucus, yeah. It's a caucus. Um, yeah, who knew? Hawaii, and, and they report in the middle of the night, apparently, right? Exactly. <laughs> so he's all fresh. Well, they they didn't start until a few contests ended. It's a two-hour process. Before we get to the presidential race, I want to start with another piece of science fiction that has been featured in the Tribune lately called Hell and High Water. This is basically sort I of— thought you the, were talking about Robert Morrow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so many, ways, so many places to go once you say science fiction, right? Um, so this is what— we're all going to be talking about after the storm in Houston. Why didn't they? Why didn't they? Why didn't they? And you've yep. been working on this project with a cast of thousands, right? <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's certainly been the work of what feels like thousands of people. Um, well, the project basically imagines a monster hurricane hitting the Houston region, something on the order of what Hurricane Ike did in 2008, except worse, what people originally thought the storm would do before it changed course. And uh, there's some pretty dire predictions. I think what's amazing is that you know, scientists and a lot of public officials have been talking about this storm and that it's coming for years, some, sometimes for decades. So this isn't like an asteroid movie. This is something that's actually that they believe is actually going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not, not science fiction, for sure. It's going to happen. It's just a question of when. And we're prepared for it, right, as a state. I'm sure we've done a, quite a lot of work on what happens, scenario. Everybody planning. in Amarillo's <laughs> ready for it. Right, and the budget <laughs> writers in Austin are putting money toward storm preparedness. Sure, sure. Uh, not really. Um, there. I mean, you know, I, I won't say the state hasn't done anything. We've certainly improved evacuation procedures and things mm-hmm. like that. But, uh, you know, no one's it's, – it's not a myth that we can't evacuate a million people out of Houston in time for a storm like this. Uh, even Hurricane Katrina was actually considered a pretty successful evacuation, which is kind of odd to think of now when you – Think of the devastation. So by whom? By I mean, they got a lot of people out, but not everyone was so able. So heck to get of out. a job, Brownie. Turns out by Politifact to be mostly true. <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of people evacuated, and a lot of people didn't. And there's a lot of storms mm-hmm. where even if there were the resources to evacuate everyone, they won't leave. So that's a whole other story. But uh, for sure, you know, the people that we talked to said the state. Congress, local officials could be doing more. It's really, the problem is there's no one person you can point to and say, it was you. It's really an, an effort that has to be, you know, across. Is a there, a, is there a wave a wand thing? I mean, if you could wave a wand, is there a fix to this? Or is it does it boil down to shouldn't have built Houston right there in that path? Well, you could probably say that of a lot of cities on the coast. But I think the, you know, if the closest thing to a wand would be to have a powerful senator on board. That's what we've been told. State or U.S.? Uh, U.S. Senator, to for do, sure. To US do senator. what? 
to basically say we need federal money to build something. We need federal money to build a coastal barrier. Except I thought kind. we don't like federal money or yeah, federal that's, anything. Right? That's, that is one issue. It's got an earmark problem, right? Um, so they basically want to build like a wall to stop a storm surge. You can't stop the storm. But right. you can stop the, some of the water or a great deal of the water. Yeah. And right now, you know, we talk to Congress and the few people in Congress that will talk to us say, well, wait a minute, we don't even have a plan that we've agreed on. And they point their fingers at the scientists who are still arguing on what we should build. The scientists say, well, no one told us to, you know, come up with a with one plan. So it's just like it's just a total blame game. Um, we actually had an event that coincided with the release of the project last week. And a lot of local officials got up and said, hey, look, Congress is finally on board. They signed this letter. What the letter said, yeah, signed a letter, very exciting. What the letter said, which, by the way, was only signed by 32 congressmen, not all 36 in the delegation. The letter basically said, hey, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, we know you're studying this, and it's going to take you five and a half years, and we think you should do it faster. It's going to take them five and a half years to study it? To study it, yes. And then, so if they started building, speaking of building walls, that would have been a nice seg later, right? But um, if... (laughs) If they were to build this... We're going to build a big, beautiful storm surge. Right. And we're going to get the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to pay for it. If they started on right. Friday morning, how long does it take to build a wall end. like that? It would probably take at least five or ten years. So you're talking about five and a half years of study, and if that study results in a wall on the day after the study, five to ten years after that we'll have a wall, and the storm's going to happen... Who knows when. Who Isn't knows this when? the problem with everything? Everything just takes too long. Well, everything they'll all takes blame too their long and You know, when it yeah. happens and it's a disaster, everybody will blame their predecessors. Well, you know, government is very right. – I mean, government does what it does. Some good, some bad. You know, there's good government, bad government. But generally speaking, the culture of government is not super streamlined right? Right. And, and, and fast. It's hard for government to pivot quickly. The idea that it's going to take five and a half years to study it. Right. It's like, really? Yeah. We can't, there's, not, there's not anything we can do to make this go more quickly? Well, see, what's interesting is Congress signed this letter that everyone's all saying, hey, look, Congress is on board. The letter basically said, Army Corps, you should do this faster. Well, the Army Corps says, hey, Congress, we need more money from you if you want to do it faster. So it's really, it really is quite insane. <laughs> um, you know, we talked to Congress about this, and they said, well, the Army Corps needs to go faster. And I said, well, you need to give the Army Corps the money. Meanwhile, in Houston... Right. <laughs> so is, can you do anything locally? Are they doing anything locally about this? Um, I think that it's tough. I mean, you really have to come up with several billion dollars to build this thing. Otherwise, you know, a lot of people we talked to said, yeah, they could strengthen building regulations. They could stop building in the 100-year floodplain. Right. Uh, you know, they could raise elevation requirements. Not really being done on much of a, of a large scale, though. And that doesn't really change anything that's already there. There's Right. The problem is really what's already there. Well, this story has a really interesting hole in it that you guys pointed out, which is that you can't get to, for security reasons and, you know, business, you know, um, competitive reasons and all of that, you can't really get to what's what would get flooded. Right. What chemicals are there? What kinds of things um, would happen? so if you had a storm like this, you know, obviously the day after that, you find out, you know, we've got this and that and the other thing in the water. What Do you know anything about the expectations for that, for the, well, for the environmental? Yeah. I mean, mess? so what you're talking about is the Houston Ship Channel in specific and, right. you know, the 100 and the hundred plus chemical plants, 10 refineries that line the channel and what would happen to them. Um, we for sure would have, you know, what some people might call a toxic soup of stuff in the Houston Ship Channel, which drains out into Galveston Bay. Um, so... No matter what, even though we don't know too much about exactly what chemicals are going to be in those storage tanks on any given day, what's going to spill, how much is going to spill, we know that. We know that the Houston Ship Channel is going to have to shut down probably for months. So the economic ramifications of that, you know, it's been estimated $300 million of lost commerce a day 
when the, sh- when the ship channel shuts down. A, right. A day. a day. Now, that was when oil prices were a lot higher than they are now. So the number may be different. But I still think we're going to talk, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a well, day. Well, and one of those congressmen who's right in the middle of this area, Pete Olson, had, you know, a, a very alarming quote in this story that, yes. you know, um, if this happens, basically you destroy the American economy. Yeah. How um, hyperbolic is that? Well, you know, I don't think it's very hyperbolic. I guess it depends on your definition of destroy or kill the American economy. Mm-hmm. But really, I mean, the building blocks of everything that has plastic in it is made on the Houston Chip Channel. A huge amount of that. We're talking everything from Tupperware to car tires to tennis balls to, you know, when you have when you take a pill, 99% of that pill is inert, right? The medicine is like super concentrated, so they want right. to add and all that. All that stuff is made on the Houston Chip Channel. So we're talking, you know, if that if that kind of operation, if you can't import and export from there for six months or longer, uh, people are going to see prices rise significantly. And then we know for sure, I mean, every expert told us we're going to see at least seven, eight dollar a gallon gas. So that itself is going to be a, a big hit. We saw after Katrina, there were huge issues with gas prices. Mm-hmm. But this this is a kind of ripple effect that would stay in the economy for quite some time. When you talk about it or write about it um, in a project like this, and, and when you sort of get everybody stirred up, you know, you, you yeah. call these congressional offices, whether they ca- call you back or not, you write these articles, you have these conferences and everything. What's going on? Is there Are there more letters? Is there any sign that, you know, you might have awakened yeah. at least somebody out of some slumber. I think at the event that we had last week in Houston, it was packed, um, and a lot of folks came out and said, "Where's Congress? You know, why isn't Congress at this event? What are we doing?" Um, another report came out, um, which suggested a whole other barrier that could be built that people hadn't proposed before, which is probably going to slow down the process as opposed to speed it up. So um, I don't oh, think so now there's an alternative. So now there's a fight over which alternative. Right, there right. could be. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're certainly going to keep writing stories to hold folks accountable or at least try and talk more to Congress because it seems as though that's where people are looking to now. But I'll tell you one other magic. The real magic wand in this, unfortunately, is another storm hitting. Um, If you look at Katrina, for years uh, there had been a series that the Times-Picayune did in 2002, Washing Away, predicted a huge storm hitting New Orleans, said that the levees weren't adequate, Um, and then Katrina happened in 2005. During all that time, the Army Corps was studying how can we fix the levees. They didn't have the money they needed after nine because of nine eleven. Right. Two thousand five happens immediately. Everything gets fast tracked. New Orleans gets or Louisiana gets like fourteen billion dollars to rebuild their levees, and it was done in six years. So Katrina had to happen. Although ironically, those levees may not even protect against another Katrina, but at least they were rebuilt to what they should have been. Man, you're a totally upbeat person to have on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait a minute. Happy I days. need to run my car into the retaining wall. <laughs> so you have this really interesting modeling thing, you know, um, yeah. that is what Ike did, what Ike would have done had it mm-hmm. gone on the path that they thought it was going to go on. And what, uh, is it 15% stronger storm? Yeah, they would added do? 15% wind speeds, which, you know, just – for your information, is only a 125-mile-an-hour storm. So that's a Category 3. Right. So we were looking at scenarios where it's not like it's a Category 5 hurricane, which people think is like the worst-case scenario. You don't need right. wind speeds that high Just to like an do okay a lot of damage. Hurricane. Kind of, <laughs> at least by wind, wind speed-wise. Wind wow. speed wow. 
So that's all on the website. We that did it with ProPublica, right? So, yes. Uh, where all did this get published? I'm just curious. I should know this, but I don't. Yeah. So you can go to TexasTribune.org/slash/hell and high water with right. a dash in between all those words, um, or you can go to ProPublica.org/slash/Houston, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or if you go to ProPublica.org or our website, you'll find a right. link to it somewhere. Oh, just Google it. Or Google it. Google or hell Google and it. high water. Um, there's also a episode on reveal. Uh, the new public radio show from PRX um, that I'm also a producer for, so you can check that out. I think that's called Mighty Ike, which is what we call this storm. Can't, that can't say hell in. on the radio, huh? Oh, we can say lots of things on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, let's let's talk about the um, the other science fiction project, which is the presidential race. Um, <laughs> I think that's even more science fiction. Probably. Patrick, where are we now? Well, we just had some contests. Um, another somewhat Super Tuesday. Um, Pretty super yeah. <laughs> Somewhat super it's Tuesday. Pretty super I like that. for Mr. Trump. Exactly, yeah. Uh, four more states voted. Um, Tuesday night, we had Michigan, Idaho, Mississippi, and Hawaii. Um, there were three primaries, one caucus. Um, our guy, the, the guy we followed, Ted Cruz. Our guy. <laughs> They've got our guy. Him. It's okay. We'll let that out in post. Exactly. That's we fine. Blank that out. Um, Ted Cruz won one of those contests, the Idaho primary. That was the, the contest that I think – he and his campaign were feeling the best about. Um, he uh, was, you know, beaten by pretty wide margins in the three other contests. Mm-hmm. Um, but he continued to pick up delegates. Um, wasn't too far behind Trump um, for the delegate count for the night, um, and continued to, you know, show viability against Trump. Which again, that's his short-term goal, which is to show that um, he deserves that one-on-one battle with Donald Trump. And this was kind of his, I think, last. Um, major opportunity to prove that before we move on to the winner-take-all the, the biggest news, I think, on the last night for Cruz was that he beat Kasich in Michigan. Well, yeah, Kasich was sort of staking a lot on sure, Michigan, Sure, I think right? that was probably the biggest surprise in the night. He just edged out uh, Kasich in, in Michigan. For and, second. And, yeah, for second. Yeah, Donald Trump was uh, right. I mean, far tr- ahead you know, for first. And, and, and the fact that we need, like in The Exorcist, to get an old priest and a young priest to yeah. pronounce last rites on little Marco. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'll, I'll have to check the numbers still, but I th- in, in, in three states, he missed the delegate threshold, the so-called Rubio vi- did, yeah. Rubio did the, the viability threshold. I think in two states, it was 15%. In one state, it was 20%. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think he walked away from the night with few, if, if any, delegates. I think, I think they said, I heard Steve Kornacki say this morning on the way into work on the radio that uh, the best case scenario for Rubio last night was that he got one delegate. Yeah, exactly. And in the Hawaii, in Hawaii, which doesn't have a threshold, so as long as, <laughs> as long as you, you, you know, know, the irony is that the, the threshold in Michigan, for play. everybody gets a prize. The threshold in Michigan was uh, was fifteen percent, but the threshold in Idaho was twenty percent. Yep. And poor Rubio, yeah. he got seventeen percent in Idaho. Yeah. So if only the threshold had been different, he would have gotten delegates in Idaho. Is it bad? Yeah. I mean, uh, and, is, and then there was yeah. a, and then the, the cherry on the Sunday for him this morning was there's a new CNN poll out of Florida that has Trump up 16 points over yeah. Rubio in Florida. Yeah, I mean, you know, ouch, obviously ouch, what ouch. Ted Cruz wants to happen on March 15th is Rubio loses Florida. And, right. you know, hopefully Get, gets out and endorses Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz right? Kasich loses Ohio. The same poll had Kasich down six points in Ohio. Behind Trump. The fact, uh, yeah. yeah, behind Trump in his home state. And the fact that, uh, you know, Kasich put so much effort into a state like Michigan, which is similar. It's a kind of Rust Belt Midwestern state to, to Ohio and was only able to come in you know, third, a little bit behind. And Republican uh, politics in Michigan are not like Republican politics in Texas. The kind of Republicans who get elected in Michigan are much more John Kasich Republicans than Ted Cruz Republicans. It's not good news for Kasich that he finished behind Ted Cruz. Well, let me me back up to Mississippi for a minute. Isn't this one of the southern evangelical redneck states that a Texas candidate was supposed to dominate back there in our 
original musings, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's been quite interesting. The knock on, I think the great irony of the race so far is the knock on Ted Cruz from the get-go is, oh, he'll just end up being a regional candidate. You know, he'll do well in the South or whatever. Right. It turns out Donald Trump is more of the the Southern regional candidate. He's won all these deep The redneck from Queens, right? You know, and I, I think... The way that Cruz supporters view some of these states, like Mississippi, Alabama, um, Louisiana, is that they're not as they're not as ideologically conservative um, this election cycle as maybe they've been in the past. They're just more, you know, and this reflects the national mood and reflects the Trump base, but they're just more kind of um, indicative of a populist anger that is. Haley Barber you know, and Trent Lott's ideology. state went for Donald Trump over Ted Cruz. Well, Trent Lott endorsed Kasich. Well, I know. I'm just you up know, and down, man. Hmm. Cats and dogs living together. This is the weirdest election cycle in history. Why it's a science fiction project, it's I guess. The, it's but it's so great. And honestly, if you had told me that on March 9th, day after March 8th primaries, that Bernie Sanders would be alive and Marco Rubio would be dead, it would only be the latest, uh, a complete upturning of the conventional wisdom of this of this race. Um, I actually heard a conversation. You're talking about, you know, we want Rubio. If Rubio didn't win, we need Rubio to get out so it could be a one-on-one with Cruz and Trump. There was some actual discussion, serious discussion this morning on the radio again coming in. People saying, well, maybe what will happen is Rubio will be pressured to get out of the race before his own state. Because if he wants to have a future politically, it will be devastating for him to to run in his own state and lose. Maybe the thing for him to do is to accept what's going to happen. He sees it coming. Maybe Chris Christie will save, call and say, hey, you got a bright future in save politics. Save the party. Save the party. <laughs> Give Cruz the opportunity to be the real stop Trump candidate. Right. Get out with the knowledge that because you've essentially thrown yourself in front of the oncoming car, save the, the children, that maybe then in the future you'll have the opportunity to run for governor or whatever else. But if, if Rubio runs in, the, in this primary on Tuesday and gets his ass handed to him, oh, look, Trump may very well be unstoppable. I, I swear last night mm-hmm. that whole press conference after he – <laughs> was declared the winner in Michigan and in Mississippi before he had been formally declared the winner in Hawaii, where he had out the Trump stakes that were not, by the way, actually Trump stakes. They were somebody else's stakes. Omaha or something. And he had out the out. magazine business. I mean, the hardest thing he was like, oh, Trump magazine. Believe me, if you've been in the magazine business recently, it's a lot harder sell to sell a magazine than Donald Trump. Or Trump <laughs> water or Trump wine. All this infomercial crap. At a certain point, you look at this Donald and you go, Trump's hammered walk. at a certain yeah. point, you look at this and you go, this is an Andy Kaufman prank. This is obviously an extraordinary prank being perpetrated on the entire country, except it's not. And he is now galloping, not walking. He is galloping toward being the nominee, either because he has the most delegates heading into the convention and they can't stop him, or because he has a majority of delegates. I mean, do you see you, expert, the great Svitek, (laughs) Nostradamus, do you see a route for him to see be what he stopped? Did there? He's setting you up. Be careful. Not before, not before a convention. Cruz um, can't get to twelve thirty-seven yeah. between now and the end. So right? Cruz, Cruz there's can't. No math as, for it. Yeah. As you see it, Cruz doesn't have a road here other than the convention. I don't think so. I think, as you're pointing out earlier, in terms of Cruz's short-term, short-term goals, he's doing great. You know, which is to move this to a two-person race. I'm still to, alive. To ensure that right. Kasich and Rubio lose right. their home so states. So that he's the you know, establishment alternative. Wow. Exactly. Imagine so, a world in yeah. which Ted Cruz. So is within the that context, Cruz is doing well. But within the context of this broader race, within the context of the entire road ahead, uh, Cruz, I think, is still a daunting challenge to overcome Trump, at least in, in a delegate count before uh, convention. Is he going to try and change his strategy? Because the whole Donald Trump isn't conservative enough is clearly just Sure. We, we've, I think we've seen a bit of a shift away from that. That was kind of Cruz's knock on Trump for a large part of, of January and February. Yeah. Was It was largely rooted in ideology. Um, ever since, I'd say, the Super Tuesday states and the lead up to the Super Tuesday states, it's been more about, you know, just straight up you know, hypocrisy saying, you know, uh, 
Donald Trump says he's for the little guy, but he, you know, employs foreign labor. He's spent his whole life sticking it to the little guy, you know. And so it's been right. a little, little more kind of um, based on, uh, I guess, kind of a populist appeal. Has that been has effective? Been ideology. I think it's been more effective than the ideology, um, you know, criticism, which, again, I mean, people don't seem to be drawn it's, to. Is, but is it effective or is yeah. it a, this, this also doesn't work? <laughs> I think it doesn't work less, <laughs> perhaps. Well, what, what's, not, what's not been effective. It's less ineffective than the other. What's not been effective, interestingly, is the people who've attempted, mostly Rubio, who've attempted to play Trump's game. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, he's a yeah. bully. I'm going to be a bully. Right. He's right. going to call me names. I'm going to call him names. He's That's better at totally it. totally not worked. Well, he's good at it. Well, he's vicious. He is good he's at it. He's in you ever the, get bullied as a kid, Svitek, back in Indiana? <laughs> he, he's a world. He's so. in the I mean, worldwide. Being bullied, yeah. You're kind of big and hulking. I think you I was, I was to okay. Really, he was the guy giving you edges. Was Needless to say, okay. Needless to say <laughs> I wasn't the Donald Trump of my high school. Needless but. to say, I was the little Marco of mine. And so, you know, my, my recollection of the whole bullying process is that uh, it, it's all well and good to, as they say in the movies, you know, you, you, you want to get a bully, you walk up to him and you punch him in the nose. Well, that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is, is that the bully and all of his friends just beat the living right. piss Squeezes out of all the juice out right. of you. Yeah, so yeah. I actually think that this whole strategy of let's bully the bully, it's a nice theory. But in the end, Trump seems completely unmoved, completely unmoved by the bully. I think optically it just didn't work for Rubio. I mean, number one. You know, I, I don't know what the age difference is, but I mean, you have like well, the, Rubio, so the Rubio, youngest, the Rubio's youngest 40, looking guy. Rubio's yeah. 45. Yeah. Same age Trump is, I think, 68. Yeah. I, think I mean, you have like Trump the, the youngest looking Trump guy is, taking Trump on the oldest man in the race. I know. He looks pretty good. He, he does not look 68. Nearly yeah, as old as Hillary. And, and, and one wow. Rubio started, you know, going into Google those. Google that wall. Yeah, going into those insults. However, you know, humorous they were. I thought at first, I thought they were they were pretty you know, humorous and effective. Um, but that certainly shattered the kind of squeaky clean image that Rubio has had throughout this race of not, you know, getting down in the mud and whatnot. Um, and so I think, yeah, they, they haven't panned out the way I'm sure you hope they would. And, and well, you know, and honestly, what's interesting, I think, about Cruz, not that I'm entirely surprised by this, is that Trump has attempted to bully Cruz to a lesser degree than he is Rubio. I heard him last night again. Yeah. Lion Ted, Lion Ted. Yeah, yeah. Cruz has not taken the bait. Cruz does not seem particularly undone by this. Yeah, I would right. say to give credit, some credit to Cruz, I mean, he is the only candidate who's been able to go up against Trump and not get entirely, you know, knocked back on, on his rear end, basically. Right. I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if he's been successful in taking on Trump. I wouldn't call it a resounding success, but he's certainly not been, you know, again, Happy, not knocked, happened, knocked He's still standing. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, you've is. got a professional bully up against a professional arguer. You know, mm-hmm. Cruz made his bones in court, you know. Um, True. You know, kind of. Cutting through the fog and trying to trying to get to an argument. Uh, I was wrong. Trump is sixty nine. Sixty nine. He's sixty nine. He's sixty nine. He'll be seventy in June. Wow. So maybe they can attack him on age. So let's talk about. <laughs> yes, you know, remember the old Reagan line against Mondale, right? You know, I right. promise not to make age the, the, well, that, the inexperience. That, that of was my... one of Rubio's original insults. Right. Yeah. Was right. sure Trump could die in office. I don't know if you, that was yeah, one of right, those things. Yeah, right. Right. I won't make <laughs> the inexperience and youth of my opponent an issue in yeah. this campaign. Right. Uh, yeah, the vice president's going to be the vice presidential picks are going to be interesting in this one. So, tell us about Texas lobbyists going on TV for Ted Cruz, Mr. Smith. Really, we're going to talk. Yeah, about we this? are. This is a, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to simply state the facts and then leave it alone. Yeah, that's I think Andrea that does it. Williams, yeah. a uh, a celebrated lobbyist uh, here at the Capitol uh, on uh, Ted Cruz's behalf on uh, Fox News, um, was heard to uh, to say that uh, Melania Trump would be an embarrassment as first lady because she has posed nude previously and she was not born here. Would be the first foreign first lady in this century. Well, there's only been like two in this century, I'd like to point out. It, honestly, there are some people who would say, well, God, at least they've stopped uh, the birther argument against the Obamas if they're talking about, you know, they're claiming that they were born here. So, you know, um, 
uh, you know, uh, it was just another weird sidebar. It was, you know, I'm curious to know what state what chair many? for the Ted Cruz campaign, Connie Burton, who does not like lobbyists particularly, thought of a lobbyist on Fox News speaking on behalf of her guy. <laughs> three, two, one. Ellen's phone is ringing. Right. Me. Three, Line one. Two, one. <laughs> um, so uh, you've got a big interview on Friday. You mean my Sid Miller interview? That's tomorrow. Yeah, that's that's tomorrow. No, Sid Miller's the warm-up. I like this. this yeah, exactly. Yeah, Sid Miller is the Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet of this uh, interview with Frank Sinatra Friday, right? Um, the number of people who know who either Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet are. Or maybe even Frank Sinatra. On this, we'll on see, this right? podcast, Nina's looks like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to interview the president on Friday. It should be pretty interesting. I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. The conversation has a, has a wrapper around it, a thematic wrapper that is the – Ways in which technology innovation disruption can be harnessed on behalf of public service, mm -hmm. which incidentally in miniature is the Texas Tribune's own play. The point of our efforts these six and a half years has been to take technology, marry it to traditional accountability journalism and try to raise the level of civic engagement. The president has said he wants to talk about civic engagement in the digital age. If you listened, as I did, to his White House radio address last weekend, he talked all about this. And he acknowledged some of the inherent problems with this argument. And those are some things that I had intended and now absolutely intend to bring up with him. And I'll bring two up right now. One is you are in the hate non-government capital of the Western world when you come to Texas. We are not disposed mm -hmm. to think favorably about the idea of government as a problem solver. In fact, we like uh, government not at all here. So the president is making an argument that is essentially trust us to partner with the technology sector and the technology sector and government together we're, we're going to solve your problems. I think there are a lot of people out in the world who have just given up on the idea that government can solve anything or could find its ass institutionally with a flashlight and a map. Right. Right. And healthcare.gov is, to my mind, the most mm -hmm. a, a pre present example of that, although clearly after some initial problems, that's managed to work-ish. They've got 20 million people signed up for the Affordable Care Act. But healthcare.gov was a very public failure. Right. Uh, uh, in the realm of marrying technology to public service, right? So the question is, what'd you learn from that? What happened there? What'd you learn from it? And how can you assure a public that is already quite skeptical about the the ability of government to do good that bringing the technology community in is is, is a plausible thing? The second thing that he acknowledged, and I think this is absolutely true, is that the culture of government and the culture of the technology community he wants to harness are absolutely in conflict in terms yeah. of how they operate. Government is, by definition, by nature, big, bloated, bureaucratic, risk-averse. We're kind of back to hell and high water, aren't right? we? Yep. Right. And the tech community is streamlined, and they want to move quickly. They want to fail fast. They want to do all this stuff. And so you take these innovators, these disruptors, and you put them in government. And it just seems like this is not like a delicious Reese's peanut butter cup of right. peanut butter and chocolate coexisting together. Molasses and electricity. This is, right? this is really... A, a, a definite clash of cultures. So from my perspective, how do you persuade the tech community that they want to give up all this awesomeness that they have over here to come over and work in a culture that is antithetical to everything that they've that they've been doing? So I, I think there's a lot of discussion well, there. It, it, I mean, that's interesting. On that, those subjects and more. Isn't it kind of that, you know, do you want the government wants to get the tech industry involved in you know, big giant problems like, you know, the Houston ship channel and hurricanes or... Or even something more mundane like why know. voter turnout sucks. Yeah. Right. What, what, don't you think that in a, in a world in which we can pause live television 
and I can hold my phone up. That's at the still Whole Foods. your definition of a miracle. It is. I can stop my <laughs> TV. I think, Paul, I think pausing live television is awesome. Wait a minute. That guy on House of Cards playing the Republican governor of New York looks like Matt Krause. Pause. Right. Take a picture of it. Tweet it. I like pausing television for that reason. Um, very specific example. I, it's, it's, it's a hyper-specific example. I can pause live television. I can hold my phone up at the cash register to buy hummus at Whole Foods. But somehow it's not possible for us to securely register. Suddenly to vote. we're a lifestyle yeah. I'm going to talk to Celia Israel later this morning. Celia Israel carried House Bill 76. State representative from Austin. Right. From Austin. Introduced uh, House Bill 76 before the last legislative session to enable online voter registration. And she had Lyle Larson and a couple of other Republicans who were co sponsors of this. It goes nowhere. If we want mm. to motivate civic participation, let's put our actions where our mouth is. Why have we not harnessed technology to solve the problem of low civic participation? So many topics to talk about with the person. Well, that'll be fun. Um, so speaking, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little hyper about the whole thing. A little bit hyper. <laughs> yeah, he'll be he'll Can be. Can you tell? He'll he'll be um, decaffeinating you, at about four o'clock on Friday how, afternoon. How, how long do we have? We have as long as we have until the Secret Service jumps me and escorts <laughs> me out of the building. I think we I think we have like. Maybe an hour in total, oh, of nice. which there'll be some kind of like, you know, bunting and, you know, pomp, and then we'll get to it, and then we'll talk. Some time for like Trump it. questions. And it's, and it's exactly. on. It's yeah. on. <laughs> the whole thing is really a roast. Yeah, I was going to say, can you, yes, can you pivot? Yes, yes, White House, I'll be happy to talk to the president about digital engagement. <laughs> Hello, Mr. President, I know you want to talk about that, but Trump, 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 yeah. Trump, 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 Robert Morrow, Robert Morrow, Robert Morrow, crazy lady at the State Board of Education, Robert Morrow, Robert Morrow. That's going to be my entire conversation. Now you've already heard it. Ask him. Now you have a window into what's going through Evan's mind while he's saying. Perfectly exactly. sedate. I'm things. trying to figure out how I can ask the president with a straight face about that lady who thinks he was a gay prostitute. This is Friday, 2:30 in the afternoon. We're going to live stream it. We are live streaming, and, and we're carrying South by's live stream. The WhiteHouse.gov is also live streaming it, and um, Svitek is the pool reporter for the White House uh, press corps on that day, right? Yep, check your inbox. You can you can get in <laughs> if you have a South by Southwest <laughs> have you pass and a hundred billion dollars, right? You got to enter in a lottery to get right. Right. Have you figured out how to write in that That's White House press billion dollars. weird? I've got, I think I've got the font down, Pat. I think that's the font. It's all about the font. <laughs> it's the font. It's the font. Okay. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes. The Texas Tribune Festival is set for September 23rd through 25th. We're going to start selling tickets on the 20th of April. And 420. You can, 420. And you can get details you at texastribune.org festival. You don't have to be eight. You have to be yes, nine. that's you what I said. Seven. You don't have to be eight. That's good. Thank you. I'm glad you did. If you have me. questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. On behalf of Evan, Nina, Patrick, and our producer, Todd, this is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. We're not rolling yet, are we? Right. <laughs>